I'm reading some fun facts. I got fun facts. You know, I, I take notes. I take notes for all this stuff. I got pages and pages of notes oh. all over my desk. Well, this is the first time I actually took notes. Ooh. And I've got a full page of notes for two episodes worth. Usually I went on memory or I had a little index card I wrote some things down on, but this time I took notes. Will, how many pages of notes do you have? It's not responding. I have zero notes. Zero notes? I don't know. The last few seasons I was on Defenders podcast. Come I back to the microphone, notes. Will. Come back to the microphone. Come back. Can you hear me? Not great. You're, yeah, you're very light. I want those sultry, sultry tones into my earbuds. How's that? Better. I think better. Go ahead. Okay. I was saying the last few seasons I was on Defenders podcast, I never took notes. And when, I t- when I'm guessing on a podcast, I don't take notes anymore. No, it's it my- shows. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> well, I want to get I want to get the will status where I just show up. Just show up. You're just ha- people are just happy to see you. They don't care that you're not prepared. That's right. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to see Will. Memory. I don't need fun facts. I just talk about what I remember. Maybe hike the volume up on your microphone a little bit. Either in Skype, (laughs) Scap, well, Scap, Skype or the like Windows mic settings. Um, I still haven't published the last episode. It didn't record very well, and I have to do some things to it. Uh, There's really nothing I can do. That's not why it's taking me a long time. I just been lazy. (laughs) Baldur's Gate came out. I've been playing that. How is Baldur's Gate? It's fun. It's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying myself quite a lot. What's your character look like? Did you go I'm a basic warlock. generic white I'm a dude? G- uh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a generic white guy. I have a beard, though. Oh. And I look kind of swarthy. I look kind of Middle Eastern, kind of Persia-ish. Okay. Yeah, so I'm a warlock. Uh I'm wondering if that's a good decision or not. I feel kind of limited in some respects, but I don't know. I made a pact with an elder god, and here you go. Here you are. So there's that. I have a tadpole in my head. <laughs> yeah, I, I did see that cinematic. That That's great. Yeah. We all have tadpoles in our heads. Uh, they're going to turn us into mind flayers any day now. We're not sure why they haven't done it yet. But uh, I'm out looking for a druid to maybe help cure me. And uh, it's been fun. I killed some goblins earlier tonight. Yep. That's Baldur's Gate. I'll wait till Will says something so I know he's back.
I'm not saying anything. Okay, we just want to make sure when you do start ta- talking, we can hear you. <laughs> I'll never okay. say anything ever again. Okay, all right. Well, welcome to Hooplecast, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I'm here with Stephen Will, in quotation marks. Uh, we're here to talk about episodes 8 and 9, Jigabobo, and Rewind 1921. Where do you want to begin? How about Jigabobo? Well, I know that much, but like where in the episode? <laughs> My first note is well, it's about Ruby having sex with Christina. That's what you got from it? Well, we started with the uh, funeral, didn't we? Yeah, That's I didn't write it. That was not my first note, though. But okay, yeah, we did. We start with the funeral of Emmett Till. And it's the hottest day in whatever city they're in. I can't remember. Chicago. The hottest day in Chicago. So I know Emmett Till came up in the in this podcast and in the the episodes previously, but we we never really focused on on who he was. And uh, for this episode, I, I did some research. Okay, let's not call um, them fun facts, though. Uh, yeah, no, nah, <laughs> I did some research. <clears throat> um, and just about his his death, right? Uh, so the the events leading up to his death is kind of wrapped in mystery and not really well known. Um, there's some controversy. That, what we do know is that three days after his abduction and murder, Emmett um, uh, Till's body was uh, found by two boys uh, fishing in the river. So his body was, was in the river uh, head, very badly mutilated. Uh, he was shot above the right ear. Uh, eye was dislodged from the socket and uh, there was evidence that we, he was beaten um, uh, his body weighed down by a fan blade fastened around the neck with barbed wire. So uh, it's very gruesome. And this, sh- the Lovecraft country didn't show it, but it, it showed like the audience reaction of people visiting his body. Um, and his mother insisted on an open casket funeral. So everyone could witness uh, the, the damage that was done to her boy. And I definitely, definitely felt that through the episode um, and just kind of when D said, what's that smell? I was like, oh, please don't tell me mm. that it's a, it's a rotting body. And yeah. So right off the bat, it, it was, it was brutal. They showed Christina, uh, I don't want to say suffering because she volunteered for it, but they repl- you know, they, uh, they recreated his murder. If you wanted to know how gruesome it was, they showed it in a manner of speaking. Yeah. Christina paid a couple guys to have her shot and then hung with barbed wire around the neck and then dumped in the water. So that, that was a choice that Christina wanted to do. Do, do you think? That was in response to Ruby telling Christina that she she doesn't know what it means to be black. You know, she never will. Do, do you think Christina was trying to feel what that is? Is that does that give her some sympathy as a character? I don't think Christina cares. She said no. she doesn't care. 
Yeah, she gets no sympathy for that now. No. She's just another eccentric. It's <laughs> just another weird thing that she does. I think the fact that she is resurrected within seconds of her death um, kind of uh, eliminates all sympathy, right? She she went through this whole thing, but it doesn't really have the meaning that maybe she wanted to have or or what the audience was supposed to have, right? Well, what was the point of that? <laughs> I, I I do think that she was trying to replicate um, Emmett Till's death, or at least the writers was trying to, like you said, represent that murder in, within the same episode. But I don't think it had the same effect. Not knowing why she was doing it, I think robbed it of any uh, meaning for me, except that it was gross. But... I mean, it shows her invulnerability, but why she chose to do that was it? Um, was it just spiteful? Like, sort of, she just doesn't care, and she's being fanciful because she's a horrible person. Do we know the two guys who did the killing? They they were hired goons, but had we seen them? Or I don't think so. So I really don't know whose benefit it was for that she wanted it done this way. So that she could go back later to Ruby and say that she felt it after Ruby said, was she trying to like, I don't think she's going to tell Ruby what happened, but was she trying to prove it to herself in some way? I'm not Maybe sure. So yeah, at first I thought she was going to go back to Ruby all beaten up and she likes, you know, maybe looking for sympathy, but I don't know. Just to prove to herself that she has the fortitude to survive something like that? I'm I'm not sure. I don't know what her what her whole deal was. Yeah, she, she's definitely a creepy character. And I think that's because we we don't really have insight into her what 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 her deal is. Only um, that magic uh absolves her of any feelings of sympathy and empathy toward anybody else. She's on a different plane of existence than everybody else. And when Ruby confronts her about it and says, like, you don't really even care, like, do you, about anybody or about this awful thing that has happened to this little boy and this boy's family and the community at large and how we're all suffering, you don't care at all. And she's like, what do you want me to do? Pretend that I do? I don't. Magic. <laughs> she just and wants I mean, to, yeah. I kind of, I kind of like how how just sort of removed, detached she is. She's a sociopath. Sorry, well, what were you gonna say? Uh, she's just she just wants to show that you know a woman can be. Isn't that what she was trying to kind of saying in a few episodes? Where she just um, she couldn't be a part of the sons because she's a woman. And she, I guess she just wants to show that she's just as good as they are. Yeah, I mean, she definitely has that complex. Did she ever say that she uh, even liked Rudy Ruby? No, she's never admitted that. So I'm pretty sure, I'm just thinking about in the book, Caleb, at least, whether he was telling the truth or not, he did say that he, you know, he really did like her. And he was, I don't know if he was quite as detached. It's kind of like what Ruby said, you know, she's never done anything 
Um, I mean, she has her agenda, but she's never done. She's helped them out. And just like in the book, um, the character helped them out, even though he had his own agenda. And in the end, he wanted, you know, Atticus for his own purpose, but still. Yeah, I just feel like Ruby, not Ruby, um, Christina is so matter of fact about a lot of things. In some ways, she's very surface level. And when Ruby says, are you going to kill Atticus? Christina's like, yeah. And he's like, do you care? And she's like, no. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, she's definitely has her own agenda. And we see um, all the adults in this episode are kind of, they're, they're focusing on their own baggage and their own issues and not really paying any attention to Deanna who just lost her father three weeks ago. And now her mother's missing. So both parents are gone and all the adults died. Oh yeah. Her friend died. Yep. Uh, Oh, I was so mad at Letitia when Diana showed up at her house and Letitia just is so wrapped up in her own business. She can't see that this little girl needs, needs your help. Oh, really irritated me. Uh, I died when um, uh, D found the um, the Woody parked in the backyard. Like they couldn't park that car further away from the house. They had to park it like you know less than a block away. That she found it right away, and you you kind of know at that point that her mother's not coming back if if the car that she drove to Illinois or was it Kansas? Yeah. She drove to Kansas and is back in Chicago and her mother's not. Yeah. I mean, this little girl has been through so much and the adults that are left in her life just keep secrets from her uh, and each other. <laughs> oh, all the secrets were given. Yeah. That's one of my pet peeves, but you know, they're just getting on my nerves. Like if they just sit down and talk to each other, be so much easier. So the cops ambush Diana. They spit on her with some magic saliva and curse her. Now, in the book, it's not what this is. Isn't it some sort of spell like he can't talk? Or how'd it go, Will? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like it on the show where she couldn't tell anybody what happened to her or, you know... Yeah, I can't remember exactly what exactly happened. If it was like coughing, it was something else maybe. But yeah, she couldn't tell any. Whenever she tried to tell or he tried to tell someone whatever happened, he would be prevented from doing it. Did that come through for you, Stephen? That he that she couldn't talk to anybody. She tried. She made one attempt, and like nothing came out of her mouth. So I did get that impression. Um, but yeah, having. You know, her grief personified by Topsy and Bopsy, the the two dancing demons. Oh, that was that. First of all, I love that horror, right? Uh, Just (laughs) and I, I think it is uniquely black horror, like to have this image of uh, just these. It looked like teenage girls, you know. 
rags and demons just dancing around and it just looked like chaotic um, creatures coming after you and it was I did like that horror aspect to this episode and it's kind of what was promised from the very first episode that we would have you know social you know biting social commentary um, mixed with uh, horror elements and I think this episode um, finally came through with, with that promise. It made me think of us a little bit, just the way they were moving around. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't seen it yet, um, but I love the way their bodies contorted. That's so disturbing. Sudden contortions, how they bent backwards and just their movements were very freaky. But definitely had real It Follows energy. If yes. You've seen that movie, that's the same sort of scenario of a, a spectral thing that just keeps following you. And you know that if it catches you, it's going to kill you. But it's just at a, such a slow pace that really the threat is like falling asleep or slowing down or whatever. And like all of a sudden it's there. Oh, yeah, you can't seem to shake it. So. Th- there's that one scene where you see D from behind and just at the corner of the screen, like some fingernails come into, into view. They're like that close. They're about to grab her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, ah, run, run. <laughs> I mean, do you think that the episode would have been stronger if it really showcased Diana more and didn't break continuity so much? I did think that this was going to be a Diana focused episode, Um, but it it turned out to be much, much more involved. And I I think it was successful. Um, So I think it was just perfect the way it was. Okay. I mean, I could have done a deep dive into just Diana and spent the entire episode with her, but I don't know. Yeah. It was freaky. It was, it, but then there were t- times where I was like, is this too silly or is this really creepy? It circled back around to being really disturbing at the end when she's being slashed and you can't see that. It's hap- I mean, well, Matros couldn't see it happening to her, but we knew what was happening. and The blood was appearing on her dress. I was like, that's very scary. But there were a couple of moments when they were dancing and hopping and jumping and skipping where it's like, oh, is this a little just too goofy? <laughs> But maybe I'm alone in that. How old do you think the Topsy and Bopsy actors are? Are you going to tell me? Are, are they like 35? I was going to guess, are they in their 30s? Or <laughs> so Topsy, who's the, the lighter skin of the, the two, uh, she's played by Catelyn uh, Gobble... Uh, I'm going to get the, the names all wrong. Gobert Harris. She's 24. Okay. All right. Uh, Bobsy is played by Bianca Bruton, 31. Uh-huh. But they look like teenagers. They look like uh, Deanna's age. And I thought, you know, having two girls that, like, represented the the other side of what Diana could be, you know, if she, she fell through the cracks of society, she she ends up being one of these, you know, forgotten children. And I thought that was – that. Um, just that that's sight uh, and then her running away from it like she's running away from um, her own well, her own demons but her own existence um, 
is was really powerful. Uh, I want to read an excerpt from The Root. These Topsy twins are filled with a complex history. I, and I'm speaking as the author, spoke with Dr. Rebecca Wanzo, whose new book, The Content of Our Caricature, African-American Comic Art and Political Belonging, deals with the depictions such as those we saw Sunday night. She reminds us that these are caricatures meant to remind viewers of the character Topsy from Uncle Tom's Cabin, who was the badly behaved enslaved black girl actively juxtaposed... I can't say words, apparently. Juxtaposed... I can't say words. You know what I'm driving at. Against the angelic white Ava, who was her enslaver's daughter. Though she is ultimately saved by white Jesus' grace, hallelujah, Wanzo adores Topsy's resistance to enslavement by taking joy in her playful, energetic, interesting black girlhood, for which she is condemned in the novel. Wanzo furthers that the piccaninny caricature that defines the Topsy twins isn't simply a monstrous representation of black girlhood, but that they were also victims of violence. There are countless racist images in which black babies were used to sell products and endangered for the entertainment of white masses. They are haunting Dee, chasing her. They are also the thing that she can't get away from, and they are produced by state violence, because part of what these representations were meant to do was dehumanize black people, and specifically here, black girls. We must connect those black girls to the state violence Dee experiences at the hands of Lancaster and his lackey as he places a hex on her that brings inanimate objects to life and abuse them with Hexie's deepest fears. The Topsy twins are the doppelgangers of the two black girls she throws rocks at for their joy immediately before she is snatched by the Lancasters. Uh, by Lancaster. Those two girls eating ice cream, untouched by the horrors of the day, also have red bows in their hair, reminiscent of Topsy, and are harbingers of the twins. The Topsy twins are the manifestation of so many things for Dee, but most significantly, her grief and her rage at the death of her friend Emmett Till. And I'll just stop right there, but there's more about Topsy twins, and there's like a, a link to, like, um, graphic art and and branding material from various companies and things that are I can post them when I post this episode that you can tell are very like the Topsy twins are inspired by all this artwork and dolls and things and you know we've seen them juxtapose juxtapose <laughs> <laughs> juxtaposed juxtaposed that's right juxtaposed someone put a hex on me i can't talk uh yeah when when the police captain put a hex on deanna you know the spit you, you mentioned that spit i don't know who's in charge of producing the spit on this show but i we we mentioned uh montrose spitting in a previous episode and then this spit like lingered on her forehead just a little bit too long yeah like, it's so uh, gross, it's so gross. <laughs> oh, the, bo- the body fluids in this um this series uh i did want to talk about body fluids um so sex and blood seems to be a recurring theme All right so uh tick and letty's first time in episode three um, there, there was some blood there. Uh, of course, all of Gia's victim in, in episode six, just blood everywhere every time uh, she had sex. And then um, 
in this episode, you get Ruby and Christina in a very gruesome body horror, just blood spewing everywhere. I was like, oh my god, it's getting in your yeah. mouth. Oh yeah, that was my that was my first note, which is, is this just to cement that Emmy? Is that what all they want at this point is a makeup Emmy? Oh, and that's why this is here. I know later Ruby's like, I had to take that potion because I didn't want to be a, a a black woman who sleeps with a white guy on on this particular day. Although not sleeping with him. It's also an option, but <laughs> I was like, just give him an Emmy already. Jesus. <laughs> Speaking of Gia. Well, I, yeah. She, she, she yeah, returns. Yeah, yeah. That was hoping we'd see more of her, but I don't know if she'll be back in the finale. But I hope so. Yeah. She was in this one for all of two seconds. Yeah. <laughs> When when Letty went to that church, do you think that Gia lit all those candles for her? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be nice. Does it have to be a man? Or, I guess. So, Letty returning to the church is interesting. Uh, you know, we, we hadn't seen her in a church since episode three. Uh, and she specifically called on a, a, a voodoo Creole doctor. Uh, to help her out with the the ghost house instead of going back to the church. So her being back in the church here um, had, I thought, spoke volumes. And uh, she summons Christina there, and that's when she gets the spell, the invulnerability spell. So does this spell create some kind of, like, force field around her? Is that what it does? It seems to, because the bullets fired at her didn't hit her okay ricocheted off maybe yeah we don't really get the parameters of how the vulnerability works because the next episode i had some questions because <laughs> like when does it wear off <laughs> because the the transformation potion wears off at very, really inconvenient times so when does the invulnerability wear off i think it's does it protect permanent. the baby or does it protect her I got the impression vulnerability was permanent, though. It's kind of... Or at least the one Christina has. Well, can she age? I don't know. There's questions. There's. Yeah. I'd ask questions, but... Questions not being asked. So Letty gets invulnerability potion. And then Tick gets his own Shagas. The return of the Shagas. Yeah, he does. He gets a cute little pet. Like a like a familiar that walks around with him, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I have in Baldur's Gate three. As a warlock, I can summon an imp. I, I was really excited to see the Shagath back. I was like, yes, <laughs> I was not expecting it, and uh, uh, I, I was cheering at that moment. A nice bookend to the first episode of Shagath versus police officer. Oh, that's right. That's his favorite meal, apparently. Mm, yum, yum. Uh, Tick also confides to his father that he knows Letitia's pregnant because he went into the future and met his son. Who had written a book about their life. 
with some changes. Yeah, shout out to people that have read the book. <laughs> yeah. In the he says in the book uh that his son wrote Christina's a man and Uncle George is alive but they have a son named Horace, not a daughter. Yeah. Doesn't talk about how Hippolyta's chapter is very different <laughs> than what happens to her. <laughs> Although I guess at this point he doesn't know. Um but this gave me an idea for a Twilight Zone episode where a man who's obsessed with the future invents a time machine, he goes to the future, but it's the year 2020 and he can't leave his apartment. Nah. <laughs> uh, most boring book ever. <laughs> he comes back and writes it. <laughs> Nothing happened for a whole year. <laughs> Order takeout. Five I, I, yep, I had groceries delivered. I watched a lot of Netflix, and that was the future. <laughs> I thought acknowledging the differences between the novel and the series was super smart. And um, I, I have to applaud the writers to, to make that little nod. Um, and yeah, very cute, very clever, very meta. I liked it. I was trying to think of the, so the differences that were made, ha, have the differences been better? Like, I think D being a girl instead of a boy makes a, a big difference, especially in this episode with the, the Topsy and Topsy twins coming after her. Um, and the police, um, the police harassing her. Very creepy. Uh, I mean, a couple, couple tweaks and it could have been a boy. I'm not, I love the actress, though, so totally okay with that it is a girl. And we've talked about Uncle George being alive or being yeah. dead and how that would, would have played out differently. I, I I'm guess still mad about that. I'm still mad about it. <laughs> we'll, we'll put a pin in that one uh, for a little bit later. But uh, We also found out that um, Tick might be George's son. Or he kind of already knew that, I guess, maybe. <laughs> but Atticus Toad take that. Or Montrose Toad, Atticus. <laughs> yeah, it, it's been a rough summer for Tick. Like, his whole <laughs> world has been turned upside down. I guess it happened back in Korea. Korea was the first instance of, uh, you know, the supernatural right. coming at him. But it um, hasn't been the same. I don't know, is that saying something about uh, war veterans? Uh, they come back and you know, things are just not the same? I feel like that's a stretch. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same for everybody around him. So it, there's no like isolation from society. It's, just, it's all crazy for everybody he knows. So. I wonder what he thinks about you know, fantasy and wish fulfillment, reading all these books, probably imagining himself as the hero of these stories and now finding himself at the center of some real crazy shit. Like, is he like, oh, what I wouldn't give for a quiet life now? Mm. Yeah, I don't even think the heroes of his stories has as as crazy a, you know, background and crazy as origin story as Tick does. So <laughs> I think he bit off a little bit more than he can chew on this one. 
So things I did not like about this episode. So I, I haven't talked about the soundtrack in a while, but I'm, I'm going to bring it back here. Um, so right off the bat, we get Cruel Summer um, performed by Banorama. You know, it's a 1983 song, and I guess it's supposed to signify that it's it's a cruel summer, right? You know, it's what August um, in Chicago. It's the hottest day of the year, yeah. and it's just it's cruel to all the people uh, there. But um, I, cruel summer is just like it's just such a um, like a poppy tune, and uh, most recently it popped up on um, Netflix's Cobra Kai, you know, the Karate Kid uh, uh-huh. sequel. And it's supposed to give you this nostalgia for the 80s, very specifically the 80s when it came out. Um, and for me, that's what I was thinking about, juxtaposed to this really you know, horrible situation of these people waiting to, to view a body. And so the, the two just did not mesh. Uh, I thought it. Go ahead, Will. I actually kind of liked it because they're playing the song, and I think at the beginning, you don't realize it's a funeral. You just see a crowd, and then it gets really serious for a sec for a few minutes, and then they bring the song back out. And I thought it was an interesting kind of contrast. Well, I'll just pick out some lyrics from that song. Hot summer streets and the pavements are burning. I sit around trying to smile, but the air is so heavy and dry. The city is crowded, my friends are away, and I'm on my own. It's too hot to handle, so I got to get up and go. And, of course, Diana is on her own for most of the episode. So there's some some links to that. I would say the kind of 80-ness, 80s-ness of it and the poppiness of it... Um, Oh God! I'm here. I go juxtaposition. Juxtapos- <laughs> <laughs> Regret it as soon as I tried to do it. Um, it reminded me so much of like how American Horror Story layers on pop songs on top of certain scenes. It just it felt very American Horror Story to me. This opening, and by contrast, there's um, "Stop That Knocking." Every time the Topsy Twins were, were doing their dance on screen, coming at you. So the Stop Dot Knocking uh, is, was written in 1847. And it just had that, like, that pounding beat uh, coming after you, almost like a heartbeat coming after you faster and faster, the Stop That Knocking. And now that, I thought, worked very well. It, it was creepy. Played yes. over creepy... Creepy visuals. Creepy visuals and nursery rhymes like this bit. Topsy with her yellow eyes tries to claw the one she spies. Topsy has the wildest do. She just wants to dance with you. (laughs) Creepy. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. We heard um, I Put a Spell on You, uh, another cover, this one by um, performed by Alice Smith. Now, we had previously heard um, Marilyn Manson's I Put a Spell on You in Episode 5. So there's a little bit of linkage with that. And then right at the end, we get uh, Naomi Wildler, uh, 11-year-old who spoke at March of Our Lives um, in uh, 2018. So that was the kind of the the speech at the end. 
Okay. And that that one was pretty powerful. She was talking about, um, you know, uh, girls. What are you, what are you doing? And I don't have the the exact lyric, not lyrics, but um, speech in front of me. But um, I thought that was pretty powerful. Right at the the tail end of an episode that focused on you know this girl being chased all her life. Yeah, it was very powerful. Anything else about Jigabobo? Uh, I did like how the episode brought together all the loose threads presented so far. So just to, to give you the, the Shagath returned that he's from uh, episode one. Uh, Letty mentioned that she died. You know, she, she's mentioned a couple times, but you know, that happened in episode two. Uh, there's the wards surrounding the ghost house, which prevented the police captain from entering. So that was from episode three. Uh, Ruby's body horror transformation for scene in episode five. Gia returns from episode six. And then the book Lovecraft Country by George Freeman uh, first introduced in episode seven. So it's kind of pulling together all these loose threads. And I think that's why the, the episode works so well. It's, it's kind of uh, almost wrapping up all these storylines or at least getting them all in one place, which I think was, was important at this stage in the series. Only two episodes remaining. <laughs> they said after this, you can kind of tell, yeah, they're wrapping, wrapping things up. Let's talk about the next one. Rewind 1921. So with the title 1921, we kind of knew we were going, we we're heading for Tulsa, Tulsa, 1921. Um, Tulsa Race Massacre, and uh, it, it was hinted a couple times, uh, specifically with uh, like Montrose saying "smells like Tulsa" as he burned the the bylaw pages. So I I don't know if I wanted to go back to Tulsa. <laughs> I, I was very hesitant about this one. I kind of knew where where I was going, and, and didn't know if I wanted to go there, but uh, going there anyway. I guess I forgot that Montrose was from there. That was said, apparently. I missed that. I think uh, when Tick took that trip down there. Oh, yeah. We talked about how uh, his mother's family and the book and everything. Um, when Tick took a trip and he ended up uh, going to try to rescue Hippolyta after that. Uh, speaking of, uh, she's back. Oh, Hippolyta? <laughs> yeah, with very little fanfare. Do you sick? Oh, hey, where you been? <laughs> well, I've been on another planet for 200 years. In my notes, I have a bit lackluster. So her, Just her return. Her return was a bit... I was expecting a Dr. Manhattan equivalent power set where she she comes down from the the heavens and like glowing blue all around her. Uh, but no, she's just uh ordinary looking human and um, mm-hmm. maybe she's a bit more confident. Like maybe she you know, took a trip on a, you know, for a holiday abroad or something. Now she's, she's come back a little more confident. Yeah. She under the Tuscan sun did. Yeah. And now she's found herself. <laughs> she does power up at the end of the episode. And at the beginning, she does say, look, I've, I am, I've named myself and I am 
I'm going to use all my skills, my mad skills that I got, and I'm going to save my daughter. And get out of the fucking way. Which she kind of didn't have that strength until she went on her journey. Mm. But she's going she's gonna to fight for Diana. I do expect a mother to, like, oh, get out of my way. That's my daughter there. Let me... Let me go do as everything I can to, to save her. But um, I wonder what everyone else kind of thought. Like, oh, okay, you're back. I'll get out of your way. Yeah, where you been? <laughs> you wanna, oh, we don't have time for that. You want to go to Kansas now? Um, uh, okay, your daughter's dying, but you want to take a – it's a 12-hour drive to Kansas, guys. I, I looked it up already, remember? <laughs> Kind of out of the way. You, the hospital is like 15 minutes from here. You, you want to go to the hospital? No, you want to go to Kansas. Yeah, that's where the multiverse machine is. <laughs> you think there was a question of who who gets to drive? The Woody is you know tick like I'll 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 do the driving. And she was like, No, I've been to space. I've been to you know planet 1260. I. Let me handle the the highway. Yeah, I was thinking about that. You think that she would like want to, you know, maybe there's nothing she could do, but I would think that I just look after Diana. I mean, I can drive and, you know, you're too emotional right now, but she didn't seem like she had everything under control. Hmm. I mean, I kind of wanted to see her just like snap her fingers and they're there in Kansas. I mean, that would, well, that would give you something. Or maybe Christina could do like what Kess did in Star Trek Voyager and not send them all the way home, but like shave a couple hours off their journey. <laughs> it's only a 10 hour drive now. Okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. I cast a spell. <laughs> or maybe like, guess what? It's a magic gas tank. You won't have to stop for gas. That'll save you 30 minutes. Something. 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 I don't know. So I mentioned Dr. Manhattan. I was looking for, I, I was comparing this to Watchmen um, because the uh, first five minutes of Watchmen, HBO's Watchmen from last year, 2019, uh, takes place in Tulsa, 1921. And that episode came out uh, in October of 2019, exactly one year to the month uh, as this episode. So we, we there there's like an obvious comparison between the two. Yeah. So do we want to compare them in terms of how they executed this, or is that not necessary? Well, I did have some questions. I was like, do so. First question: Do you think Watchmen stole some of the thunder from from Lovecraft Country by by showing kind of presenting uh, Tulsa? 1921 first. Maybe. I think last year a lot of people were finding out about it for the first time, but now that we um, know about it, maybe it's not so, it's not so shocking. Maybe it's good that it doesn't feel like a, uh, like there's no one out there now. If you, well, I'm sure there are people who didn't watch Watchmen, but for the people who did, there's no question like this actually happened. So you don't have to wonder like, is are, is Lovecraft country like playing fast and loose with history for some reason? 
Like, no, like you, you know, it's all true. So maybe that's how that helps provide context. And my second question, do we think that, uh, oh, actually this two parts. So is Tulsa mentioned in the book? I didn't read the book, so I have to ask you guys. Yes, um, either George or Montrose talk about, you know, what happened, you know, the day the riot started. It's not like this where they go back in time to it, but it does describe what happened. Okay. So the follow up to that is, do you, do we think that David Lindelof, who wrote that first episode of Watchmen, read Matt Ruff's book and said, Oh, that's a good idea. I think I'll lift that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Who knows? I like to think not, but maybe. <laughs> Knowing what the riot, well, the, not not riot, but the massacre, knowing what was going to happen at the end of the episode caused your tension to be built up throughout the beginning part and middle of the episode. So having known what was to come, we, and not just hearing that vaguely that it was bad, like we know it was bad because we saw it in Watchmen. So I think that actually kind of maybe helped the episode. This felt more personal, too. Watchmen, it was the starting point for the series, but it wasn't the whole of the series. And this felt a lot more personal and central to our characters' lives. So I will say you're you're correct on that one, because Watchmen, we didn't know who any of the characters were. We hadn't been introduced to them. And even... Even after that first five minutes, and then we we advance to you know present day or you know in near future uh, up from today, um, we didn't quite get a an idea of who who was at Tulsa um, in 1921. There there was actually a character that was that was the linkage between those you know two dates, but um, that wasn't revealed right away. So there there was uh, that not personal uh, connection. Whereas this one, you did, did know that of oh, Tick's family, you know, burned, you know, their house burned down here. So this something bad's going to happen. And it's very personal to the, the, these people. If I were that lady, I would not let my family die and willingly let myself die for some hypothetical future great, grand great grandson. <laughs> But it's already happened. <laughs> Time travel paradox. I know, but uh, I mean, a woman who comes from the future, she says she's from the future, and she says, uh, I'm going to give birth to your great-great-grandson. How's about you just let yourself die for me, okay? <laughs> and she's like, well, you know, my my flesh will become will or whatever is my faith or whatever she said. Here's the book. I'll just stand here and catch fire. I don't know. If it were me, I'd say, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, that that first Terminator movie would have been totally different if uh, Reese came back and told Sarah, you know, why don't you just let yourself die, you know, for the cause? Yeah. <laughs> the future's already written. How's about we just annihilate the human race? <laughs> Come with me if you want to die. 
Yes. <laughs> totally different line. <laughs> uh, yeah. For more about Terminator, listen to the What We Make podcast. Ding. I don't know. Fire isn't got to be one of the worst ways to go. And she just stood there. Uh, she took it. Yeah. She took it very calmly, though. I mean, she I, sure did. I think I would be at least trying to roll around on the ground, you know, stop, drop and roll do do something, not just stand there and, you know, say, you know, the Lord better be ready for me. Here I come, Lord. <laughs> and we know you'd think that instinct, like primal instinct for self-preservation would take over and you would you would try to put the flames out and you would panic. Yeah. More than she just she just staunchly just accepted it. She's she's a tough old bird. And we know And her family too. And we know that the book was destroyed in the fire, but Letty is standing in the middle of a fire with the book, so she must really trust her preservation spell. Mm. And then she the, later on she walks through more fire with it. Yeah, taking her sweet ass time. I know. Were we all screaming, uh, yeah. hurry up, Letty? <laughs> Hippolyta is in a lot of is really struggling here. She can't hold it for much longer. Why are you walking so slowly? <laughs> Why are you walking in slow motion? So, Will, were you asking if um, Letty's invulnerability spell, you know, kind of creates a bubble around her so that she can protect the book as well as herself? Yeah. Because okay. <laughs> I was wondering, like, are her clothes going to burn off or what's going to happen? <laughs> Does it trap a little uh, layer of oxygen where she can breathe yeah. instead of the whole room getting sucked sucked from oxygen? Right. Uh, don't don't think too hard on these. <laughs> you, mm. you won't get an answer. Magic. <laughs> because magic. It's magic, man. It's like jazz. That was a good line, though. Was that Montrose's line? Magic, magic, so much more jazz. In the previous episode, something like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you can see these. Do you see the whole time travel causality loop coming? With oh, you're the you're the mysterious stranger, Dick. Yeah, and that paid off too. The I got you kid. Yeah. And the baseball bat and the Jackie Robinson in the beginning of the series in the dream sequence. Yeah, that all connected. I thought, and I thought that did uh, very well. Um, yeah. I did see um, just other references from other sci fi. Um, you know, when. Um, when Montrose was watching Thomas die, right, and he knew that he was going to die and couldn't do anything because if he did anything, it would change the future, blah, blah yada, yada, yada. So that, um, that reminded me of uh, Star Trek, the original series episode, uh, The City on the Edge of Forever from 1967. So in that episode, Kirk's... Buck and McCoy travel back in time to 1930. And of course, Kirk falls in love with a girl, but um, the girl has to die. Like she dies in, in their past. So she has to die 
in now and their present. And so there's Kirk and McCoy are standing on the side of the road, uh, kind of on the curb and from a distance and they, they end up watching her die. So very, very similar, similar shots, uh, just two people off to the side, you know, witnessing events that they knew were going to happen already and powerless to, to do anything about it. Um, yeah, I've been watching a lot of dark on Netflix and it's all wrapped up in time travel and what you, you know, you can't bring that boy back to the future. If he, if he doesn't stay in the past, he'll never grow up to become your father. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Confusing. Your, your hands are tied. Although if you can't change the past, then why do you have the ability to time travel? Like what good is it? Just so that the universe can rub its, rub your face in it? That you can't do anything about it? Right. And then the, the other reference I had was, uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban from 2004. So that this is one where the uh, tick picks up the, the baseball bat and kind of becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. And Harry does uh, a very similar thing at the end of that episode. And that episode also had time travel. So uh, episode, that movie also had time travel. Wow. S- spoilers for a 2004 movie. Time Turner. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, the most emotional part of this episode for me was watching Montrose regret that he can't save Thomas's life and knowing that and the last words he said to Thomas calling him a slur and although they did hold hands when they were scared and mm. just like he you know he let his friend slash lover potential love I don't want to say lover they're they're still children but this all put him down a path of self-destruction, and the really upsetting part about it is how he then carries that trauma forward into the abuse of, on Atticus. Mm-hmm. And now Atticus has that trauma, too. So I think that's the worst thing about it, is how it just becomes a generational thing, a, a legacy, this trauma and violence. And that's what's really, for me, upsetting. But yeah. I really felt bad for for Montrose in that moment. Like he could, he's seeing this is the moment when I lost myself. Yeah. I've really been surprised with the, the character arc of Montrose. Um, when we first saw him in episode two, um, he just appeared like an angry black man, a very, you know, one dimensional. He was angry, angry that they had come to rescue him, angry, you know, at, tick and then you know you got the impression that they didn't have the best relationship to begin with um and then we kind of see that in episode five oh he's he's a closeted homosexual maybe that's why he's so angry all right so there's there's a little bit of a layer a little bit of nuance to this character and then here in episode nine you you realize that he's still that scared boy you know trapped in the past and he's kind of trapped in this moment uh, his, his, his whole development kind of arrested, um, you know, interrupted and that, that, that's where he lives and, you know, he can't get past that. And that's why, you know, he wants his, his son tick to be tough, tougher than he is 
Um, and that's why he beats them. And, you know, you can, but you just, you're adding a little bit more each episode to, to what this character is. And I really appreciate, and I really appreciate um, uh, Michael K. Williams for portraying that in such, such a, a nuanced way. Um, and if you look, you know, I know him from as Omar little from the wire and in that, uh, uh, that show, he was also a homosexual, but he had so much, so much confidence and, um, you know, he, he was impervious. He couldn't, couldn't be hurt kind of thing. And he just walked with kind of swagger. This character, yeah. this character is not Omar little. And I, I really, I really appreciate the, the differences. But it, it takes a whole season to really see that. Uh, and I think this episode, um, uh, and with Tick saying, I got you, kid. I, I, yeah, I, I, I kind of teared up a little bit. I mean, I think it's, it's Tick finally understanding who his father is. And now it's his turn to kind of take care of him mm-hmm. um, after years of abuse. I mean, it's just, I, I can't imagine what what's going through ticks, you know, ticks been mind fucked this whole time, but I mean, um, that, that one line, I got you kid was, was, you know, powerful. It was great. I wish he had followed it up with be nice to your son. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have kids one day? Never hit them. Mm. Oh, so I'm hope. Meanwhile, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm just hoping. No, I was just gonna say something stupid. Go ahead. I- I'm hoping that next episode they are, they've come to terms with you know their past. I guess I don't think it works that way. I don't think it's like an automatic turn of the dial, but I'm I'm hoping that they they come to some resolution. I think there'll be a neutral ground. Because Atticus was telling him, like, after this, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't think he's going to have that same opinion after this. I think he's going to understand that his father was, you know, really damaged by something totally out of his control. And, you know, that damage has just reverberated for all these years. But maybe they can start to heal. I I certainly hope so. I don't think it's going to be instant. I think it's going to be gradual. But I think you're going to see it. I think they're going to be better next episode. I certainly hope so. Well, I know I want um, the phrase, I got you kid on a t-shirt that that's got to be on a t-shirt somewhere. Um, you know, I have a like team Steve t-shirt from uh, stranger things. That's where um, the, the silhouette of Steve Harrington with a baseball bat. I want, I want the silhouette of tick with a baseball bat and just says, you know, I got you kid. Yeah. And people who know what that's from, I mean, that's that's a powerful moment. I, not everyone would see it, but those who do, they'll understand. Mm-hmm. I found it a little hard to watch Hippolyta when she was struggling to keep the portal open at the end. I don't know why, just the way she's like, Convulsing and kind of spitting and more saliva. Yeah, the thick white, goopy saliva. Yeah, yeah. She's basically Storm from the X Men at this point. (laughs) Lightning shooting out of her. Just don't. Hair turning color. Yeah. 
Fortunately, no one went into that hotel room <laughs> while they were gone for like hours. Like, can you imagine if the maid went in there and saw this portal? Like, what the hell's what's going on in this room? I'll clean this room later. I was trying to figure out where that hotel was situated because it looked like it was in the middle of the street looking out onto, you know, Black Wall Street. It did. <laughs> it was really jarring. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if that's reality or um, it, it just ended up being that way. It looked good on screen, so they had, they had to keep it. Yeah, great view from that hotel room. The window just looked out right where you, right where you needed it to, to see, yeah. which is Letitia. Well, my note is Letitia needs to hurry the fuck up. There's <laughs> too much dicking around in the past, and I'm not enough hurry up and getting that book and getting back to Diana. Did have one more question. Um, we see we see Montrose's father, and you know we see him beating. Montrose. So you, you get the impression that um, this is passed down. This behavior is passed down from generation to generation. But he, he mentions, you know, pick a switch. And I swore I've heard that audio before. Can you guys remember where you heard pick a switch? I, I feel like it was played maybe in the first episode because there is that reference of I got you kid. Maybe in that uh, fantasy element. I, I got to go back and watch it just to but you guys didn't get the, the impression that you heard pick a switch before? Like it, like from the show or from some other context? No, from the show. Like I, uh, No. It wouldn't surprise me, though. Uh, maybe during a Montreux scene, he's flashing back. Yeah, maybe when he's drinking in his hotel room. Or not a hotel room, but I guess his apartment room. Yeah. Um, where he's drinking. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a brief memory of Montrose, um Probably drink when drinking, of if hearing that. That that brought back, and I always assumed it was Montrose that was saying it, but here we we hear it's it's his father that's saying it. Oh, well, I think it's both. Oh wow, that's true. <laughs> so Hippolyta's hair turned purple, right or blue? Blue. Does she become her um her character? Com- yeah, her comic, comic book character. character. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think so. Uh, and if you're interested in uh, so the the Hippolyta actress uh, Anshinu Ellis was on uh, Lovecraft Radio, Lovecraft Country Radio, and just talking about um, you know when she got the role, like she knew that she would have a, a meaty episode in whatever I said episode um, uh, episode seven. Um, and what it meant for her. And she, she had some, some good insight. Uh, She also had insight. Like I'm just an actress playing a role and, you know, playing against a a green screen at some points and just, it's, it's hard to act that way. But um, if you want, if you want to hear Ingenue Ellis, Lovecraft country radio. The song at the end um, is called Tulsa 1921 Catch the Fire, and it's an original operatic piece written for the show. It's basically the 
was it a poem? Spoken word poem that played while the house was catching fire. It was that poem put to music. And the music supervisor, the composer, uh, whatever her job title is, uh, she wrote this opera piece and it was like, she said it was basically recorded in her apartment or in her house, in her closet or something. Cause everybody was quarantined, uh, self, you know, isolated because of COVID. So all of this show's score was done remotely with musicians in their own homes and then was spliced together, you know, edited together to sound like they were an ensemble that they had recorded together. So this, could be the first time that's ever been done for a television show. Hmm. Wonder if that's one of the reasons why there's so much, um, you know, pickup uh, audio, like from you know sourced audio. Yeah. Like they they couldn't do it any other way. Hmm. Oh, that's that's interesting. Uh, we did get. I, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to read um, from this poem. It's a poem by a woman named Sonia Sanchez. It's called Catch the Fire, and the poem goes, Where is your fire? I say, where is your fire? Can't you smell it coming out of our past? The fire of living, not dying. The fire of loving, not killing. The fire of blackness, not gangster shadows. Where is our beautiful fire that gave light to the world? The fire of the pyramids. The fire that burned through the holes of slave ships and made us breathe. Brother, brother, sister, sister, here is my hand. Catch the fire and live. Definitely fit this episode when uh, Letty's walking through the fire. That poem mentions uh, some prominent names. Uh, Nat Turner, Fannie Lou Hammer, uh, Nelson Mandela, Marcus Garvey, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. So all political activists. Um, I did have uh, Nat Turner was a black American slave who led uh, the only effective sustained slave rebellion in 1831. He was captured, hanged, beheaded, drawn, and quartered in November of 1831. So just um, a few few weeks after he. Uh, did the slave uprising. Um, he was put to death. They should do a four season TV show about him on stars. <laughs> Is that a Spartacus reference? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, we did see uh, the police captain's body. You know, we, we had questioned what that was. Yeah. So he he was using um, dead using corpses yeah, corpses to sustain his own life, which is really gross. Uh-huh. Yeah, the grossest part was when uh, the magic was wearing off and his nipples popped out. <laughs> <laughs> his nipples exploded. And I had note Christina being creepy as as always. Actually, was it Christina or was it William at that point? I think it was William that she was. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Potato, potato. Why why present yourself as William in that moment? I I guess because they killed William and 
she wanted to. She wanted. Well, they knew it was Christina, but it was just a weird choice. He had to bring William back. Magic. And then we also saw Dell. You know, you had to bring Dell back for one one last time, and. I got the impression that Ruby kills a comatose Dell. Did you get that impression? Mercy kills. She Kevorkians her. You you think it was Mercy? Because she she had the line saying... I think so, yes. She had the line saying, I always want to be a redhead. I think she was being cute, but my impression was that she was seeing suffering in Dell and wanted to end that. And was like, you know what, I'm kind of sick of this. Yeah, she... Yeah. <laughs> okay. I got a different impression. I, I I thought she was gonna find another white woman with red hair. But we'll see. Yeah, I thought she might also have been getting rid of the temptation as well to keep doing that. Well what episode was that? Wasn't that the previous one? Wasn't that the end of Jigo Bobo? I thought that was this one. Oh. I, I could be wrong. Well, this one starts with Diana being sick. So at what point yeah. would that have happened? Yeah, because after they um, reset the spell, she went off with um, Christina. Yeah. she <laughs> Rudy went off with Christina. Okay. While everyone else took a trip to Kansas for 12 hours. And then back in time, of course. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> I did think the um, the Tulsa 1921 stuff uh, worked very well. And I think it's because, as Matt mentioned, it's um, uh, it had some stakes to it. Um, you, you knew... You knew the characters or the relations to some of the characters. And it it did have that feeling of helplessness. Like there wasn't anything they could do to stop. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they were witnesses and almost um, in the worst kind of way. But um, so yeah, I thought it was a successful episode. So we had two back-to-back successful episodes. I was really happy with this group. Um, and this this one episode, it felt like a finale episode. It, it was big, bombastic, huge set pieces, huge stakes. Um, it, it almost, in the same way uh, Game of Thrones would usually have the uh, big battle sequence as the second-to-last episode mm-hmm. of a season, that's what this felt like. So that this was this was the big battle scene. Yeah. And it worked. Very successful. I enjoyed it quite a lot. So what's left for next episode? Next week it's the series season. We don't know finale. It's called Full Circle. Mm-hmm. So they got a book. I figured they they've cured um, D. They cured Deanna. Yep. Uh, what else? Christina's now already invulnerable, right? She she's got what she needs. Oh, she wants to kill Tick. And she wants to be yeah. immortal. 
Well, Atticus is like volunteered now. She's like, as a man of his word, we know he has integrity. He's going to go to Artem and offer himself up. But just because he's willing to do that doesn't mean his friends and father are going to allow that to happen. So I think we're going to have a showdown with Christina. Does he have to go to Artem? Like, there's nothing there. There's ruins. Oh, I guess he doesn't have to go to Artem. I don't know. Well, it's called Full Circle. (laughs) I hope they go back to Artem. I want Gia to get Nine-Tailed Fox Spirit on Christina. Just have like a one-on-one battle royale. Oh, maybe. Because Gia's think, not going not to let Tick die. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't think she is. I don't think. She just needs one more, right? Then she's human. <laughs> so maybe one more. Is Christina. Is there another Could be character? William. As yeah. William. Does that count? I don't know. <laughs> what it's are magic. the rules of, uh, what's the uh, Kumiho rule here? Can you kill a guy if it's actually a woman as a guy? <laughs> hmm. I don't know. Christina's really the only heavy left in the show, not that the police captain's dead. Yeah, I don't know. So, I'm I'm assuming some sort of showdown between Atticus, uh, who has a book of uh has the book of adam or whatever it's called the book of names to read the adam language he can cast spells now so some spell slinging going on oh yeah <laughs> two two wizards going at it yeah hippolyta has lightning powers everyone's like powered up at this point everyone's got something going on okay well that's next week all right Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye. Duplecast.com. <laughs> juxtapose. Juxtapose. No. Juxtapose. Give it up. Nope. 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 Can't do it. <laughs>